0: Wow. Welcome to the Vine. My name is Andrew. I'm so excited. I'm so glad you're here. If you're joining us online right now, we're so glad that you're uh, joining us online right now. Um, I do two things when the Holy Spirit is here. Just be aware. Two things. One is I clap. The other is I cry. I will try my best not to cry, but I might clap a little bit with you today. Is that all right? Are you guys okay? All right. Um. So just a few years ago, and by that I mean about 15 years ago, uh, when you get older, the past seems a little bit closer. So about 15 years ago, I woke up one morning and I went to my sink and I looked in the mirror. Now, who knows that it's a bad idea to look in the mirror first thing in the morning, right? Right? And so I wake up and do the thing that you should not do first thing in the morning, go straight to the sink, I'm washing my hands, I look up, I look at myself in the mirror, and it's weird because as I'm looking in the mirror, this thought goes through my head, look at your back. When was the last time you looked at your back? We human beings do not look at our back very often, okay? It's actually kind of hard to look at your back, right? So, I hear this voice, look at your back, and I'm like, okay, just like and I'm kind of like spinning this trying to look in my back and I see something on my back I'd never seen before. I saw a little lump. And the little lump was was there very noticeably, kind of small, small but noticeable. On my back. And, and the annoying thing, it was, it was at that, that place on your back that you can't touch. You know, there's like that bit right there that you cannot touch. It was sitting right there. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But it didn't hurt. I couldn't feel it. it didn't bother me. I never really saw it. So I just ignored it. And I just carried on with my life. Word of warning. Do not do that. About six months later, I wake up, and as I wake up, I feel this incredible pain on my back. I feel this pain that's kind of stretching and pulling, and, and it feels like there's fire on my back. And I, I go to the mirror, and I, I turn, and I look on my back, and sure enough, that little lump from six months ago has now turned into a big golf ball sitting on my back. And not only is it a golf ball, but it's red and it's inflamed and it's angry looking. And every single time I, I turn my back, it, it sends sheets of, of pain across my back. And so, and so I go to the doctor that day and I, I show him the, the big kind of bump on my back. And he looks at it and he, he kind of prods it a little bit. And he goes, mm, I think it's a cyst. Let me refer you to a specialist. So the next day I go to the specialist And the specialist is like using his fingers and prodding this thing. And he's like, yep, yep, yep. This is a sebaceous cyst, but don't worry. It's not a big deal. We can open you up, pop it out, and zip you back up again. It'll take about 15 minutes. You can do it on your lunch break. Talk about efficient Hong Kong, right? Like, you don't need to miss any work. You can keep making money. You can do it on your lunch break. One hour to deal with the thing on your back. He's like, it's super easy. I open you up. I pop it out. I zip you back up in 15 minutes and back to the office. I'm like, cool. I was working in investment banking at the time. I'm like, I don't have to skip any making money time. All right. So I make my appointment next week on a Wednesday. I go into this guy's office. He has like a massage table in the office. There's like one of those faces, like little holes where you put your face in it, right? So you can breathe. I'm lying down on this thing. And he goes, okay, here's what we're gonna do. I'm just gonna inject some local anesthetic around uh, the little lump there, the cyst. Uh, I'm then gonna open you up, pop it out, and zip you back up again and get you back to your office with a sandwich. He opens me up, and then I hear this. (gasps) Oh, no. (laughs) Now, normally when you're having surgery, you're passed out because they give you general anesthetic, right? And you don't hear anything, right? And the doctors could talk about anything about you, and you would have no idea. But when you're just getting local anesthetic, you're fully awake. And the last thing you want to hear when the doctor opens you up is, (gasps) oh, no. So I'm lying there, trying not to panic, and I go, Doctor, because my my mouth is a little bit muffled by the thing I'm lying on. Doctor, the doctor. He's like, well, um, I opened you up, uh, sir, and uh, your cyst is actually attached to your back muscle. Because I didn't realize that it's attached to your back muscle. So it's going to be a bit harder to remove. Now, what the doctor should have done at that moment was well, zip me back up again, make an appointment for some major surgery, actually give me general anesthetic, and remove it however he wanted to. But did he do that? No He decides to give me a little bit more general anaest- a bit of local anesthetic, a few more injections, so that he could begin to cut the cyst out of my back muscles. Now you have to understand that. The cyst was so entangled around my muscles that in order to get it out, he actually had to end up cutting my back muscle. Now, back muscles are a little bit like the probably the way to describe it to you is a little bit like piano wire in a piano. And imagine getting like a cutter and cutting the piano wire. It's like ping. Like this, right? That's what it's like if somebody wants to cut your back muscle to get a cyst out of it. It is excruciatingly painful, and the surface numbing of local anesthetic does nothing to dull that pain. Literally, ping, ping, I was screaming my head off. Within about half an hour, I kid you not. They run out of local anesthetic in the clinic. They have injected me so much. Tears streaming out of my eyes. I'm screaming all the time. They're trying. Oh, everybody else. I I don't know who was in the waiting room, but whoever was in that waiting room left. (laughs) They were like... I am not going in to see that doctor, right? The guy's like, like, they run, literally run out of local anesthetic. I'm crying. I'm screaming. He's panicking. He's still cutting because he thinks the faster I cut, the quicker I can get this thing out of this guy. And he'll be, you know, after a while, he leans forward by my ear and he says, Valium? I'm like, yes, Valium. Thank you. He injects Valium into my arm, and suddenly, I'm with Jesus. <laughs> ah, life was good again. Literally, within seconds, my whole body was flooded with this sense of, you can do anything you want, you know. It took him almost two hours to cut out my cyst. I have, I'm not going to show it to you, but I have the ugliest scar on my back. It was so painful. I had about a month's worth of physiotherapy afterwards. And I was literally in trauma. The kind of trauma that makes you want to sue a doctor. <laughs> but the Bible says do not sue. Okay, So I did not sue the doctor. All right, Did not sue him. About a month and a half later, God began to speak to me out of that experience. Who knows that if you have a really traumatic experience, God likes to speak to you. And God begins to speak to me out of this experience. And he says this, Andrew, do you remember that really painful experience with your cyst? And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. He's like, that's just how you treat your sin. I said, what do you mean? He said, that's just how you treat your sin. You know, you kind of casually kind of go, oh, oh yeah, that's there. And then you kind of think it's like no big deal. You kind of just go on with your life, and you don't really do much about it. You actually don't do anything about it, Andrew, until it starts to hurt, until it's a bit painful for you or painful for someone else. Then you you think you might need to deal with it. And then when you think you need to deal with it, you think it's just a surface issue. You think you can open yourself up, pop it out, and zip yourself back up again, and everything's going to be fine 15 minutes back from lunch. But God was saying, Andrew, you need to understand that your sin so easily entangles Hebrew 12, verse 1. And it it so easily entangles that what you think is a surface thing actually gets much deeper into you, actually has the power to get in there with roots that you can't, with any local anesthetic, just think you're going to pop it up, zip it out, and off you go. He's like, you got to understand that actually, so often when you deal with your sin, Andrew... You try some behavioral management because you think that's all you need to do for something surface. And I I thought about it later and I thought this is so true. This is what so much we do as Christians. We think our sin is like some surface issue. So we just apply some behavioral management. Oh, I'm a little bit angry this week. I'm gonna try and be a nicer person. Oh yeah, there's that website I keep going to that I know I shouldn't go to. I'm gonna download that software next week That'll help me not to go there or whatever the issue might be. And we think some some clever little behavior change in us is going to deal with that issue. And then we're shocked and angry at God when three weeks later, we do it again. And it pops back up in our life again. And, And God is saying... Andrew, you need to understand that your sin is not some surface issue that you can just lightly deal with. You need to understand that there's no local anesthetic that's ever going to deal with your sin. What you need, Andrew, is a complete regeneration of your person. What you need is a complete regeneration of your spirit. And if you would just give me your life, if you just open yourself up to me one more time, I could actually come and totally renew you so that your future would be just as you want it to be. This idea of being completely regenerated by the power of God is the next step in the journey that God takes Israel on as he wants them to see the new thing that he's doing amongst them. If you've been coming to the Vine over the last couple of weeks, you know we're in this series where God is doing a new thing over Israel. In fact, in Isaiah 43, verses 16 onwards, he declares, I'm doing a new thing. Right now, it's springing up. And then he asks Israel a question, do you not perceive it? Can you see the new thing that I'm doing amongst you? And really from Isaiah 40 to 66, it's this beautiful prophetic verse, poem of Isaiah speaking out over Israel and saying, I'm doing a new thing and I want you to see it. And here's the things in your life that's stopping you from seeing the new thing that I'm about to do. So in week one, we looked at how expectations stop us from seeing the new thing of God both good and bad expectations of how God has acted in the past actually causes us to put God in a box of how we think he's gonna act in the present and future. And so often we miss out on the new thing God does because we think we're looking in the box for him to act this way when God actually wants to act in a new way. And then last week, we looked at another thing that stops us from seeing God acting new in the world. And it's because we're not looking in the right place. It's because we're actually not going to the very people that God is often doing that new work in. As as Israel are challenged by God in Isaiah 58, they need a new fast. Their current fast, their current traditions, their current practices were not suitable for seeing the new. In fact, they had forgotten the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the hurting. And if they were to go to them and actually begin to do the very things that Christ had called them to do, use their resources to bless the poor, make sure they're not so hungry, clothe the naked, find housing for the homeless. As they began to do that, they would actually begin to see the new thing God is doing because the new is happening amongst the very people they were avoiding. And then he gets where we are today. I've dealt with your expectations. I've told you where the new's happening. Now I wanna deal with the one thing that got you into exile in the first place. I wanna deal with your sin. Oh, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, why did I come to church today? You're thinking, man, I could've gone hiking. There was a great barbecue and I said no. And now i got to sit through a pastor talking about sin, which really raises the existential question for many of you in this room. What time is lunch? (laughs) But I want to encourage you to hang in. Because I actually want to approach this issue of sin from an angle that perhaps you've actually never thought about it before. I wanna approach it actually through the lens of Isaiah and how Isaiah approaches it to Israel at a great time, a critical time in their history. I wanna actually show you God's heart for why God wants to deal with this sin issue in Israel so that they might be able to see the new thing He's about to do. And the reason why that's exciting is because God is super excited about that new thing and He doesn't want them to miss it. See, follow me, church. So often when we think about sin and we talk about sin, what goes through our mind is that God's angry. He wants to punish us. We've done wrong. And so we need to get punished for that thing so that we can be made new in him. When actually what is really on God's heart is your future. What's really on his heart is what he wants to do through your life. What's really on his heart is you're flourishing and who you are as a person. And God sees who you could become. He sees who he's created you to be. He looks at you and says, man, that one, oh, I've got so many plans for this one. I've got so many things I want to do. I don't want them to miss out on anything. In other words, his heart towards our brokenness is not to punish us, but release us. It's not to to come and say, hey, this is a really bad thing you've done and make us feel guilty and shameful and horrible. It's to say, man, if you could only see this thing that I'm going to do through you, you would throw off the shackles of your bonds and you would walk into freedom. I'm so excited for you. And God comes over Israel at this critical moment of their history and says, the Messiah is ahead of you. Jesus is ahead of you. He's coming. And I don't want you to miss seeing him. I don't want your sin to blind you from seeing who he is so that when he comes, you're you're not able to receive the gift of full life that he wants you to bring. No, no, no. I I love you so much that I will speak to you about the very things that are likely to blind you from seeing the gift that I'm giving you. Are you with me, church? Do, do, Do you get a sense of God's heart? See, God's passion against the sin of Israel is not about their past and some need for punishment, but about their future and their need for life. And it's the same for you. His passion for you to speak about some of the areas in which you're broken right now is because he's so passionate about the life that he wants to bring into you. And so God brings Isaiah, this prophetic word, to stand over his people and say, Hey, the Redeemer is coming. Jesus is coming. Prepare my people. I'm doing a new thing. I want them to see it. And the only way they're going to see it is that they allow me to regenerate them. No local anesthetic is going to do it. But I've got the one who can truly set them you're with me. Hopefully now you don't want to go for lunch as we open up God's word together. His Isaiah 59, verse one. The chapter in which God is going to deal big with the brokenness and sin of Israel. I want you to see how he starts. He says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to ear. I, I want you to see this right at the start. God's about to speak some pretty big stuff to Israel about their sin and about their brokenness. But I want you to see how he starts it. I want you to see the doorway through which he moves. He goes, here's the first thing and the last thing you need to know about me. I'm mighty to save. My arm is not too short to save you, nor are my ears too dull to hear you. In other words, what he's saying over Israel is before we talk about anything else, before we talk about some of the brokenness that's going on, you need to know my heart. My heart is I'm here for you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm fighting battles for you. I can save you, redeem you, renew you, set you free. I can turn you into the person that you were always designed to be. My ear is not deaf from your cries. My arm is not weak to save you. There is nothing you have done, God is saying to Israel, that has changed me. Come on, church. See, I think we think that our sin changes God. We think that our brokenness has some effect on him where he gets suddenly angry or distant or removed or separated. He starts his great chapter about sin by saying, I'm right here. I've not given up on you. I've not gone from you. My heart is here for you. Why? Because it's just who I am. And whatever you do does not change me. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love you. I've got you. I'm singing your praises. I'm here for you. I will save you. I'm not deaf from you. Some of you in this room, your starting point is God can't do this for me. Your starting point, when you think about your sin is, I just can't break it, you know? It's habitual. It just just always happens. Some of you, your starting point is God's angry at me. He's upset at me. He's not speaking to me anymore. He's distant from me. I think Israel had every reason to feel that way And God starts by saying, I'm here, I'm for you, I can save you, I'm hearing you, and you need to know that before you know anything. For some of you in this room, that will set you free today. Just that simple thing, that your sin has not changed God. It has changed some things, and we're going to get on to talk about that, but it hasn't changed God, or how God sees you. Are you with me, church? Is anyone here? Come on. I'm clapping, see? But notice what God says next. Verse two. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. Hang on a sec. So, so God starts out by saying, I'm here for you. I'm is safe. My arm is here. Not too short. I can hear you. I'm with you. I'm for you. you got a great future. I don't want you to miss out on it. God starts with such a positive thing, but then he talks about the reality of what has happened through their sin. He says, your sin has separated you from me. In fact, he says it more specifically. He said, and it's quite important how he says it here. He says, your sins have hidden his face from you. The very important thing, there is this concept of a hiddenness. Your sin has hidden his face. I want you to see something right up front here. It does not say God has hidden his face from you. Come on, church. It says your sin has hidden his face from you. In other words, his face is right there. His face hasn't been removed. He is present with you right there. He's still for you. He's not against you. Your sin, however, your sin has infected this relationship. And mostly, this is how it's described. It has hidden you, blinded you. You're not able to see him in the way that he has actually designed you to see him. That's the great travesty of sin. Not that it removes God from us, but it removes us from God. We cannot see him as he desires for us to see him. To understand the power of that hiddenness, I wanna actually just go a bit broader in scripture beyond just Isaiah. Fifty-nine. I want to take you quickly uh, to a part of, I think, what is the predominant place in Scripture theologically, where it speaks about sin. This is Paul and Romans chapter one, and we're going to dip. We're going to kind of go down into this chapter because I want to unpack a few things about the basic idea of sin, and then I want to apply that back to Isaiah fifty-nine verse two. Is that all right? Can everybody do that? I know it's eleven o'clock. We're going to keep moving together. All right. So here it is. I want you to see how Paul presents the reality. Of the travesty of sin, so that we can understand what it does to us. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1: The anger of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul is writing here, and in fact, he's gonna go on, I'll show you in a moment. He's writing here about Adam and Eve. He's talking about Genesis 3, and he's trying to help his church understand what the travesty of Genesis 3 has done for them, what it has done for all humanity, for God's people. And he said there's this wickedness, there's this callousness in us. And he says here, uh, really importantly, he says it has suppressed the truth by their wickedness. The first thing Paul wants you to know about sin is that sin suppresses the truth about God. Now, why is that important? It's important because in Genesis 3, when Satan shows up to Adam and Eve, he shows up and he says, hey, why did God say you shouldn't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And they're like, well, he just forbade us not to eat from that tree. And here's what Satan says. He says, the reason why he doesn't want you to eat from it is because if you eat from it, you'll know the truth. Oh, really? What's the truth? Oh, the truth is you're not just made in the image of God, but you actually are God, that you can be God. The truth that God is hiding from you is that you will actually be God. You'll see the world like he does. If you just take of that fruit, you'll suddenly see things just like God. And Adam and Eve are tricked. They're deceived into eating a fruit, thinking that they will know more, thinking that they'll see more of the world, become more like God. And it is a trick. Sin does not give us more knowledge. It suppresses the truth. Sin does not allow us to be more open to the world. It actually closes us off from it. This is the starting point of what Paul's trying to unpack to his church. You need to understand that your knowledge of God, your understanding of Him in your sin is actually suppressed. It's not released. It's not like you get to see Him more, understand Him more, know Him more in your sin. Your sin hides go back to 59 verse 2. Your sin hides the truth. It doesn't show you the world as it is. Are you still with me? Now notice what Paul then says next in verse 21. He says, For although they, speaking about Adam and Eve, knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, this is very important. He says, first step, We sin, and it suppresses the knowledge of God. Second step. When the knowledge of God is suppressed in us, our thinking is impacted. We no longer think, good things about God. We no longer want to honor Him. We don't want to think good of Him. We don't want to be grateful for Him. Our our thinking is repressed inside of us because the knowledge of God has been repressed. Repress the knowledge of God, then human beings will not be expressing that knowledge. What he's talking about here in, in verse 21 is that we don't worship. Sin stops us from worshiping God because if you suppress the knowledge of God, where is the worship then coming from? If we're not seeing him, if we're not experiencing him, if we don't have the truth of him, where does our worship come from? We stop worshiping because our thinking has changed. Are you still with me? Now notice what he says here. He says, and they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Here's the third thing that happens. First of all, you suppress the truth of God. Second of all, it stops you from worshiping. Third, sin doesn't just hate, it loves. In other words, it doesn't just reject, it attaches. What is it attached to? Something man made. See, your desire is to worship, it's the way you've been created. But if you've suppressed the knowledge of God in you, if that then has stopped you worshipping the right thing, you will end up worshipping the wrong thing. And that's what the enemy wants. He wants you to attach to the wrong thing. He wants you to be addicted to your pornography. He wants you to be an alcoholic. He wants you to worship money. He wants you to, to dedicate your life to your career at the expense of your family. These are things that the enemy wants for you. He wants you to worship what God does not want you to worship. And all of this is what sin does. Now, I'm gonna summarize all of Paul's teaching here in one PowerPoint slide that you can take a photo of and put on your fridge. Are you ready? Here it is. Sin hates the truth of God, suppresses it, and exchanges it for what sin loves and worships. Sin loves to worship and serve the created, not the creator. In all of us, since the reality of this exchange and the brokenness it creates in us. That's Paul, Romans 1, helping you to understand the power of sin. Now, I want you to take all of that great theology and I want you to bring it right back practically to Isaiah 59, verse 2. Let me read it to you again. But your sin has separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. Do you hear it with fresh ears? Do you see it with different eyes? It's not like God has separated himself. It's not like God has gone, Ew, mucky humanity that keeps on sinning. Get away. This is actually, I'm here. I'm here. And I want you to see your future. And our sin is suppressing his knowledge. We're exchanging it for the worship of something else. And this was Israel's issue. What led them into exile in the first place was their idolatry. It was that they had given up worship of Yahweh and they changed it to worship of the other kind of ethnic religions around them. And that exchange had upset God. That exchange had separated them from, not because God had given up on them, but because they could no longer see properly. God was hidden from them by their sin. Are you with me? Do you see the power of that? That's a powerful revelation for some of you in this room. That God's right there looking at you. And going, you're awesome. i got a great future for you. But you can't see it. You can't even see me. You can't see me the way I want you to see me. The fullness of myself is right here for you. I want you to see me. So that your life would be changed. So that you would know what it is that I've called you to do. If you could just see me. If you could catch a glimpse of me. But your sin has hidden my face from you. Israel begins to understand this. And Israel does the one powerful thing that we all need to do when God moves in this way. Let me show you this from Isaiah 59 verse 12. They say this. For our offenses, Lord, are many in your sight. And our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us. And we acknowledge our iniquities. And then they give a list of them. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord. Turning our backs on our God. Fomenting oppression and revolt. Uttering this—uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back. And righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes its prey. They come before God and they're like, we've done this, not you. We, our sin has built a barrier between us and you. We cannot see the new thing that you've announced. You've asked us, can we perceive it? We're saying, no, we can't because there's this stuff in front of us. Let me list to you, Lord, the things that we know we've done. That, and, and they're doing that, not because God is making them, but because they're like, these are the walls between us. These are the the veil, if you will, that is up between us. This is the murkiness that affects us. It is my porn addiction. It is my alcoholism. It is my lust for money. It is these things. And I acknowledge them to you, not because you're punishing me. I acknowledge them to you because you're going to set me free. I'm going to see you in a way that I've never seen you before. And that's what I want. That's what I want. To see you like I've never seen you before. Now, Israel understands, though, that they can't change anything. (laughs) They understand that no behavioral modification is going to deal with this. They realize that this is no longer a surface issue. Local anesthetic is going to do nothing. And it's at this moment, when they acknowledge the reality that they're helpless that God leans over to their ears and says, Phalium. And they're like, yes, please. I want you to notice this. God responds, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Notice this, the Lord did not look and was displeased at his people. He looked and displeased at the state that had been created through sin. No justice, no shalom. The poor were still being marginalized. Those that were on the outskirts were still being downtrodden. There wasn't stuff happening that was his character in the world. He looked around and he was displeased that the world was not as it should be. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Notice this. He realized that there was no human that was going to be able to set this right. There was nobody to intervene. God Himself would have to intervene. How does God intervene? He would send His Son Jesus as a human, fully God and fully human into the world. Why? Because sin is essentially a human issue, but it's only God that can deal with that issue. That's the incarnation in a nutshell. Fully God, fully human, because sin is a human issue and only God can actually deal with it. And so He says this, He said his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as the breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in a zeal as in a cloak. Those words should remind you of something. Paul later in Ephesians would write these exact same words, Pauling here from Isaiah 59. God does it now. Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. I'm gonna fight your battles. Paul later says, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we get to put this stuff on now. We get to protect ourselves against sin. We get to fight battles for each other. We can wear the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We can put the belt of truth around us because we will not suppress the truth anymore. But in this moment, God is doing those things on behalf of his people. Notice what he says in verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sin. Jesus is coming, basically, is what God is saying to Israel. And I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you not to see it. I want you to see the glory of Christ amongst you. He's just coming. And if you repent of your sins, if you acknowledge the wall that's between you and me, the wall will come down. How? Look at how he says it in verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant for you. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time forever and ever, declares the Lord. God starts by saying, I'm here for you, I'm mighty to save, I can fight your battles. He ends by saying, I'm gonna put my spirit in you and my spirit is gonna so regenerate you that my word will not to depart, not just your mouth, but your family's mouth and the generations after it and the generations after that and the generations after that. I'm gonna do something through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that is gonna change all of eternity, that if you're in that relationship, you're in that relationship forever, it'll be for the glory of you. I'm not giving you some local anesthetic. I'm regenerating you from the inside out by my spirit and by the word. So so see what God is doing in the chapter here. It starts out by saying, I've got you. I'm mighty to save. But your sin blocks your vision of me. Wow, God, I understand that. I see that. I don't want my vision of you to be blocked. Lord, here are the things that I know are blocking you. Would you forgive me? I'm pouring my spirit on you. I've got my word for you. I'm regenerating you and your family for generation after generation after generation. I got you. So sin isn't this really dark thing. I mean, the consequences of it, the reality of what it does in our relationship with God, dark, hard, bitter things. But God's attitude and approach is, I've got you. So let me draw us to a close with one quick and final demonstration to you of all that I think God is saying through Isaiah. And I think this will really help you to understand how you should approach all of this in your life. This is the practical way you can put this into place. It starts out by knowing that God created humanity good. In fact, humanity is described as very good. And actually Genesis 1 and 2 shows us a picture where people are able, Adam and Eve, to see God without anything blocking Him at all. The word uses. they were naked and unashamed. Nothing between them and God. Nothing between them either. They had this total transparency, vulnerability, and openness before God. That's how we started. That's the relationship in which we should have with God. That's the way things ought to be. And then Genesis 3 takes place. And in Genesis 3, things get entered into what it is that God has created in us. What what are some of those things that I think we deal with? Well, let me give you some examples. I think one would be self-righteousness. I think us Christians are really good with self-righteousness. See, self-righteousness is represented here by select vinegar (laughs) because it looks a lot like how we were intended to be, but it really, really stinks. Self-righteousness is not the way Christ has created you to be, even though you can come and pretend that everything is okay when actually it stinks. What about things like anger that I know many of us deal with, bitterness that has to be represented by Tabasco, surely. And that comes into us, doesn't it? And we we find it really hard to shake our, our bitterness and our anger at one another. It stores up inside of us and it stores up deep inside of us so that it bubbles up at the most inconvenient of times. What about things like we talked about earlier? Fear and anxiety and worry. I think a Twining's bag is a good way to think about your worries. Why? Because we dip in and out of our worries on a constant basis, don't we? Just like a tea bag in a cup of tea. And as we dip into our worries and as we leave it in there, they just begin to soak and begin to slowly spread and cover everything. What about uh, something like envy? This is something we struggle with in Hong Kong a lot. Oh, they got a better car than me. Oh, they live in a better place than I do. Oh, their job is better than mine. I want everything they have. I think that's best represented here by lime syrup uh, because it is incredibly sour. Imagine what it would be like to go around envious of people all the time. Very sour towards them, aren't we? What about this? What about our gossip? Gossip is represented here by Nescafe coffee. Now, here's the reason why. Because gossip is something everyone is doing, but it really isn't good for us. And it's really at work in us. You're all drug addicts. How about our secret sin? This one's for us Asians, myself included. This is soy sauce. But it represents our secret sins. Because soy sauce is the little condiment you have on the side. It's not the main dish. It's like kind of over there, but if you dip your thing in there, it actually taints everything, right? Look at the colour. Look at the way in which it gets absolutely everywhere. Now, here is exactly what I think God is saying through Isaiah to Israel and what he's saying to us today. He said, "'Your sin blocks you from being able to see me. "'Your sin hides my face from you. "'You cannot see me anymore.'" Let me show you. <laughs> that's biblical, revelations. I spit you out of my mouth. Oh man, that's bad. Sin does not taste, taste good. At the the end of the 9.15, somebody came up to me and goes, I got a name for your cocktail. I'm like, oh, really? What is it? It's like sin in the city. I'm like, there you go. (laughs) But this is what God's saying. Your sin hides my face from you. It's not my face is taken from you. You just can't see me the way it is. And what Paul says in Romans is we need to be regenerated by Christ. We need to know that Christ fights those battles for us, that He regenerates us inside out, that He pours His Spirit over us at the end of Isaiah 59, that the Spirit pours over us. And as the Spirit pours over us, uh, everything is able to change. So let's take God's Spirit. And as we begin to allow it to change us, to renew us, to move on us, look what it actually does inside of us. It completely Changes us. Now, not until Christ returns are we completely renewed in Him. But now we live in this tension of now but not yet. Paul would describe it in 1 Corinthians 13. He would say, it's like I see through a glass almost dimly. But guess what? That tastes an awful lot better. Your sin hides God's face from you. But your response is to simply allow him to pour his love into you. To pour his forgiveness and his grace over and over again into you. To fill you again with his love. So that the things that are there that no local anesthetic is ever going to deal with is going to be able to be purged and cleansed for you for the glory of God. If you want to see the new thing that God is doing in 2023 in your life, it's going to require you getting rid of your expectations... It's gonna require you moving towards those within which he's working. And it's also gonna require you to deal with the very thing that hides God's face from you. And we do that through the forgiveness that comes from acknowledging our sin before Jesus and enabling him to wash us again. Valium, Holy Spirit, he's here for you and he will set you free. If you'd like me to pray for you on that, would you stand with me? I want to pray. And if you'd like to respond today, just open your hands. And if you're online right now, you can do the same as well, wherever you're watching. Just open your hands before the Lord. Father, we come before you today, your people, your chosen people. People who you declare over that my arm is not too short to save. My ears not deaf to these ones. But Father, we recognize our glass is dark. We recognize, Lord, that we add and add at times. And that our sin hides your face from us. And so, Father, we come with open hands before you this morning in the positive idea that there's a great future just ahead. That when you come back, as Revelation 21 and 22 would describe, the new Jerusalem. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no longer in the garden. That there's no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. That we are now fully with you, completely like it was at the beginning of all things. But in this moment, as we see through a glass dimly, let us see. May we see you in a way that we haven't seen you before. Lord, we come to you asking for your cleansing, that is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. No man was able to do this. So we come to you with the incarnation of Christ, fully God, fully human, who took our sins, bore our iniquities on that cross, paid the price for what it is that we had done, who rose again to say that sin does not have the final word, that death is not the full stop, merely a comma. That you would open up for us a new life, a life of abundance and love. That the enemy came to kill and destroy, but I came to give life and life abundant. And Lord, I pray over every person here whose hands are open before you. That you now would bring your regenerating spirit of love. That they would feel you like they have never felt you before. And they would see your face like they have never seen you before. Father, I pray for a releasing... I pray a releasing from the things that blind us from seeing you the way that you created us to see you. And Lord, we open ourselves to a new future. Father, we declare as Isaiah 43 did, that you are doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Will we perceive it? I want you to take some time as your hands are open before the Lord. Just allow the Holy Spirit to bring to mind Maybe the one thing today that is part of that blockage, that is part of the blinding, that makes your glass dark and difficult to see through, that one thing that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind for you right now, it'll be different, of course, for all of us. And as you bring that to Him, do as Israel does in the chapter. Just acknowledge Ask for his forgiveness in that one area. would I bring this thing to you. I acknowledge that it is not of you. And I ask now that you would change me. Would you forgive me? And in that, his promise is that you have a redeemer. That his spirit and his word will not depart from you. God declared that as a covenant over his people. And if you honestly bring your brokenness to him, he forgives and restores and renews. And the sin that so easily entangles is released in the name of Jesus. And Lord, it's in the freedom of being released that we now get to move forward in Hong Kong, move forward in our workplaces, move forward in our families, move forward in the social networks that we have, move forward in the relationships, in our lives. Lord, it is in the freedom that comes through the regeneration of your spirit to our brokenness that we find new life. Lord, I pray that everybody here would go forward in hope and joy. In Jesus' name.